Welcome to the third season of That's So Second Millennium, the Catholic science podcast where we explore the fascinating borderlands between science and theology through realms of philosophy, human experience, and more. Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium, episode 106. In this episode, Bill and I discuss statistics and p-values, and uncertainty in general in journalism and science. Hopefully that doesn't sound too dry, we've got lots of fun applications. Turns out journalism and science have more similarities than we realized before we started that conversation. As human endeavors, they're more alike than you might expect. So with that, here's our conversation. some you know reading and i actually still have a pertinent part of this one article that came out a few years ago about um statistics and common abusive methodologies and statistics that have just grown more and more common over the decades despite the fact that people are people who know anything about it know that this is really not the way to go that's fascinating yeah. Uh, because they have nothing else, right? Um, exactly. That's that is that is your very uh, pertinent observation that you know we don't know what else to do. So you know you can't beat something with nothing, and it just sounds so plausible. It just sounds so nice. Yeah. Um. So the I mean the thing that we're talking about is what's called a p-value. Okay. So a p-value comes up if you let me see. This is one of the things where I'm like, you know, in my career, I've sort of danced around it and I've encountered them. But I'm trying to think if I if I had to come up with a question like, when would you encounter one in the wild? I don't know. It depends on what <laughs> part of the wild you're in. Right. Uh-huh. As so many things do. So, OK, so you could construct a p-value like, OK, uh, let's say you've got birds on two different islands in the Galapagos and you're like, you know, you're inspired by, you know, Charles Darwin, and you're going to go out and measure the beak lengths of birds on these two different islands. Okay. So in that scenario, you're like, okay, let's say this, there's something different about these two islands. It does not even matter what, maybe this one island is much is older than the other one. And the volcano that created it has eroded down further and the foliage is different and blah, 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 blah. It does it doesn't matter. There are differences. Or maybe there are no differences and you're still interested because the birds might be different. Too. Right. So, so what you, in, in this experiment, there's sort of an implicit or there's an obvious choice of what's called a null hypothesis, which you've probably heard of. Yes. Uh-huh. So, you know, what do you, what do you suspect the null hypothesis would be in this circumstance? The null hypothesis is that there is no difference between them. There is no difference. Yeah, in in uh, in, in uh, ordinary language, you'd say there's well, the, the birds' legs, beaks are just they're all about the same length, right? Or at least, and to get a little bit more formal about it, you'd say the populations of birds. You know, these two populations have birds. Their beak lengths are you know basically drawn from the same distribution. Okay. Or, and then you come up with some measurement that you could actually make that would somehow allow you to test that. And you say, well, all right, so I will sample 200 birds from each island and I will measure all their beak lengths. And then I will look, I will, what I will do is I will construct a, well, I'll take the average and then I'll 
assume some sort of statistical model, like maybe they're normally distributed with a nice bell curve like we know about. Right. And and then I'll, you know, of course my actual 200 data points aren't exactly on a bell curve because that never actually happens, but maybe right. they're close. And maybe I can assume that the real population of like 20,000 birds on each island is really normally distributed or close. Right. Um, and, it's, and then I'll say, okay, and then the mean is this far apart. And with enough statistical methods, I'll say, I'll come up with a p-value. And the p-value could be something like, oh, let's say it's 0 0.061. Okay. So it's like, or, or six, 6.1%, let us say. Right. Um, so in the sort of contemporary abusive uh, environment that we live in, <laughs> as, 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 <laughs> as it grew in over the course of the 20th century, the crude technique that is widely decried and widely used is to say, well, at 0.05, results become significant. So what is the p-value actually telling you? The p-value is actually telling you that given your assumptions, given your assumptions and the null hypothesis, uh -huh. so given the null hypothesis of the birds are really, their beaks are all about the same length. They're, there's, there's no actual difference between the two populations. Um, therefore, you'd expect the means to be the same. Uh, of the whole population, and therefore my mean of my sample, which is my stand-in for the mean of the whole population, should be close to the same. Um, and, and I'm assuming they're normally distributed, and probably two or six other things that, you know, we don't need to wait all the way through. Um, given all of that, there would only be a 6.1% chance that the means are this far apart. Let's say they're 4 millimeter, 4.2 millimeters apart on average, you know, okay. the of those different links. Um, if, and people say, well, it's not 5%, so it's not significant. There's, but there's only a 6% chance that given all that other stuff, you would actually get these values to be this far apart, which is what the p-value does tell you. Right. Um, unfortunately, what people want to do is they want to turn around and say, because the p-value is, well, let's say it was, maybe the p-value was 4.5% instead, maybe it's 0.045, and yeah. then all of a sudden you're good to go. Huh. There was, I mean, there's not much difference between a 6.1% no. and a 4.5% p-value, but, uh, but you've crossed that bright line. Yeah. And so what there is, is there's a strong, strong temptation to find whatever, you know, crude or sophisticated method to hack the p-value so that it gets below that magic number. And you might be in a field with magic number or something other than 0 0.05. 0 0.05 came about, if I recall correctly, because that's about two standard deviations away from the mean of the, you know, if, if you have two things that are drawn from the same distribution, you would only expect about 5% of the time uh, for them to be that far apart. Right, right. Um, the, 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 I, lost, I lost the two standard deviation significance of that, but there you go. Um, in any case, that's, you know, that's, that's more or less the origin. It comes back from the 20s. And it was, it was originally thrown together as something that was merely a pointer toward, well, now you should actually study it. <laughs> yeah. If you have yeah. something that's, you know, around 0.05 or less, 
you know, maybe it's actually worth studying. If it's 0.2, it's probably not important enough to, you know, to worry about. But if it's 0.05, you should actually look at the problem. But the yeah. problem is, is you should actually look at the situation and see if there's something there. But instead, that's been taken as the, oh, well, once I get to 0.05, there's something significant. And therefore, I can publish because, by God, I need to publish uh, because I need to make tenure. Uh, right. Right. <laughs> or I need a yep. job. I yeah. need, I'm, a, I'm a graduate student. I need a job. I'm a postdoc and I need a next job. So, yeah, I mean, that's the whole, and so that's, that's the background to uh, some significant problems that we're facing, you know, in the world at large. And I know you're more plugged into the, the news about, you know, COVID and, and things, you know, things like, you know, face mask um, guidance changing, you know, over time and, uh, and that sort of thing. And then there's a whole bunch of sort of methodological problems that, I mean, that's, that's the problem. Someone was, I was listening to a podcast where someone was commenting, well, the problem is, is that people are watching science happen in real time and they don't like it. Ah, I like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's right. Uh, science is uh, just as messy a business as uh, the religion that science is supposed to be replacing in a lot of people's lives. If not more right? so. If not yeah. more so. Yeah. Worse yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, the the place where I encountered statistics and their messiness first was, of course, way before COVID, and it was in uh, election polling. Oh yeah. And uh, twenty sixteen couldn't have been a better example of the messiness mm-hmm. of statistics and all of the different things that are going on in the uh, in the background. Uh, of statistics, and uh, I, I've had uh, friends in the polling industry who who kind of candidly say that polling has become simply uh, less reliable, or at least less meaningful uh, in some ways. I'm sure they've found algorithms to to improve upon this, but um, uh, people uh, no longer have landlines, so right. many fewer many fewer people are receiving uh, phone calls uh, as kind of uh, spam or junk phone calls. Yeah. And the more people are uh, reached by cell phone, the more likelihood that those are more affluent people. Mm-hmm. So fewer, no, there you go. Yep. So there's all sorts of hidden things going on in the numbers. And of course, uh, what you're saying uh, is a kind of newsworthiness judgment. Uh, 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 what, there you what go. You said would be the, equivalent the, the journalism equivalent is newsworthiness. Uh, exactly. Yeah, there you are. So, in other words, why even report a uh, uh, a, a survey if uh, there's only one or two points difference between the uh, two candidates? The only way that they could make that valuable is by looking to last week's poll which had the candidates six points different, and then they can build a story that the lead has narrowed. But if, a, if candidates are only two points apart from each other, that's well within the usual margin of error. Right. So that all... The, at the margin of error that they admit to. That they admit to, exactly, because those <laughs> things we were talking about, like phone, like cell phones and all, yeah. those aren't even admitted to. Yeah. Yeah, that's background yeah. Uh, stuff. Yeah. So yeah, it, oh, statistics are really something. Uh, it's yeah. uh, 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 there's a reason why it's uh, said that you know it's, there's lies, damn lies, and 
and statistics. But there is also very uh, great truth in both journalism and science that uh, we have nothing better. Right. In so many cases. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, your alternatives are things like so. So there's a very specialized set of statistics that apply. I mean, many, many scientific fields have their own little specialized sets of statistics. So when I was at Notre Dame, you know, solving crystal structures, you know, if occasionally you'd have the, you know, opportunity to actually solve a crystal structure more than once in case you were, you know, worried about the quality of of it. Not enough. I mean, unfortunately, doing it. 20 times was was really not on the table you know <laughs> but right. but doing it twice was <laughs> and so you so you get to see that the software that you use to solve the crystal structure will among other things um no i mean it'll give you it'll give you what's called the unit cell so the unit cell is a box uh, okay. that's basically the size of the repeating unit of the you know atoms inside the crystal the, the okay. lattice is made up of essentially conceptually it's made up these repeating boxes and you could center the box anywhere. Um, and then the atoms inside it are just replicated. You just slide the box over in all three dimensions. You build up the crystal conceptually that way. And it just repeats. That's called translational symmetry. That's the oh. fundamental feature of crystals. All crystals have that. Even if they have no other kind of symmetry whatsoever, they all have to have that to be a crystal. Okay. So that unit cell is a very important, the dimensions, the lengths and the angles of the sides of the box. If it's not a, you know, a perfectly rectangular box um, are all very important to understanding, you know, how the structure of the crystal is built. And so the the software will give you its own sort of uncertainty on, it will give you, you know, plus or minus 0.04 angstroms or something like that. And the size of a unit cell is generally going to be some handful of angstroms on each side. Um, might be two or three or six or 12 if it's sort of a biggish, um, you know, complicated crystal. Uh, and then you'd solve the crystal structure again, and you'd be off by two-tenths of an angstrom instead of 0.04. Um, so there, so whatever uncertainty was in there, like, it's, you know, it's clearly not replicable to that degree of certainty or anything close to it. Right. And so I never got far enough into it to understand, how are we getting this overly sure of ourselves? <laughs> exactly what are... <laughs> I was I was focused on different aspects of the process rather than trying to improve that. But that's always stuck with me that how did we how did we get here? And, and oh, I love that. I it's love not that. alone. It's 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 not a, a solitary feature. And it, and it's so human nature to just not be bothered by the question, uh, you know, how did we get here? Uh, uh, and uh, to be uh, so self-reflective uh, that you're actually asking yourself uh, how we, uh, you know, are we, are we, are, did we, did we take the right path? Did we take it far enough? Uh, where, it, where is it leading us? Uh, should we proceed or not? Uh, as you said, you know, whether, when there are grants involved or when there are oh gosh, particular yeah. areas. You of shrug interest. and turn the crank and, you know, put the paper out yeah, and, and go on to the next thing. Yes, and of course that's very true in journalism, where you know the reporter has to write that story by the six p.m. deadline. So suddenly those go. statistics, uh, you know, they're not he, he or she's not going to question those statistics. Let's let's churn out a story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. It really the, is. The, the assumptions underneath it just never never bubble up to see the light of day. Yeah, yeah. 
So how did you get interested now? In, well, uh, you, uh, you always were, and uh, that always they, they always played a role in your uh, your scientific efforts. But uh, was there something uh, recent that drew your attention I'm, to I'm, the uh, p values and stuff like that? Well, it's it's the whole. Well, I mean, part of it is that I started I started listening to another podcast, the Nature Podcast, where this has been. I mean, the replication crisis. It has a name huh. um, that people simply can't. You know, that a bunch of studies have been put out over the years by people desperately seeking tenure or promotion or whatnot, um, <laughs> and their graduate students and postdocs, um, that, that people have now dug into and started trying to replicate on a massive scale. And on a massive scale, they found out that things with a p-value of 0.05 are not necessarily replicable. Oh, my. You know, it could go... It can, and. The, the reasons for that are, you know, they're all over the place. And of course they dig into the weeds of the methodology where the data came from and they, and they so seldom can be reduced to their own simple numbers. That's why the P value is so attractive. It's a simple number. It's a grade. Just tell me what grade I got. Right. Yeah. Like every student's <laughs> rallying cry. Yeah. That's another area like, where statistics are very shallow in their meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, but, uh, but, but so I've, I've been following that for, you know, a while. And I, you know, I remember something that my uh, master's thesis advisor, I remember her writing, was it in an email that she was sending to someone that I was copied on? Or was it something that she, I read in a grant of hers, a grant proposal? Well, she's, she's very, so where she comes into it, and I've had her on the podcast, is the Ann Hoffmeister. She's, you know, two episodes oh. back in uh, the end of, whenever that was, was it 2018 probably? Um, and she's a, you know, sort of a, a firebrand controversial sort of figure, um, to the degree that she's not simply ignored, um, which is the fate of many of us. But in any case, so she's, she's very concerned with heat flow and heat conduction. So I was actually reading a paper just yesterday or the day before that I saw linked on Twitter from someone, you know, in the planetary science community, very exciting paper about the internal structure of the moon and how long the moon had a magma ocean. Huh. As, as a geologist, it doesn't get much more exciting than magma ocean. I don't know how <laughs> you feel about it, dear listener, but magma oceans are fun huh. um, in planetary science. Like the entire, you know, upper part of the mantle was a melt. This is so exciting. I can't explain how exciting this is. Um, and all the chemistry that that happens. That's why the moon is so beautiful, bright, and pale, is that you have this melt, and then what crystallizes out of the melt first sinks to the bottom, but what crystallizes out of the melt second or third is called feldspar. That's a very common oh. class of minerals. It's what makes granite pale um, oh. is feldspar and it floated to the top. And that's why the moon is its beautiful pale white. So much of its surface. So much um, of it is feldspar? It is, is the, is the, in, in orthocytic highlands, a specific kind of feldspar. Um, anyway, but that's, so, so they were doing uh, studies and they were considering how long the, the moon could possibly stay in that state. And so they had pulled out, you know, that there, there was an actual discussion, like she's winning. The whole point of this is my advisors, she's getting somewhere. She's right. getting to people finally. So I was looking, so I was looking at, uh, you know, someone has, has overestimated, you know, there, there are all these estimates that were used for the thermal conductivity because there's a whole big things change in a physical system when the heat is transmitted by conduction, which is just one end of something gets hot, therefore the other end of something gets hot. Right. As opposed to convection, 
So imagine you've got a spoon sitting in a pot of boiling water on the stove. So there's heat underneath the pot. The pot gets hot by conduction. So the heat just has to travel through the material of the pot, right? So the pot's not moving anywhere. But when it gets to the water, the water at the bottom gets hot by conduction because all, all heat, well, that's not true. There's radiation. That's how the bottom of the pot got hot, actually, is to a large degree radiation, although there's also conduction there. But the, pot, the water at the bottom of the pot gets hot. And what, gets, what happens to stuff when it gets hot? It expands. It expands, right. And therefore, it rises. And the cold stuff at the top of the pot sinks to the bottom of the pot, and then it's its turn to get hot. Right. And so that sets up flow, and so that, that's convection. So the whole, it's an important question in any kind of, you know, geologic, uh, in any place where there's melt or any place where there's stuff that's so solid that it can, or that's so hot that it sort of can flow, even if it's not really liquid, huh. um, if it's soft enough to flow. Um, so you, so, so, so that uh, it depends critically on, well, can the heat travel by conduction? And if the, ther- if the thermal conductivity of something is high enough, it will short-circuit the whole convection process and you, the material won't move. Is the material okay. going to move or is the material not going to move? Really important question for understanding how a planet works. Um, and so the, so the old estimates were, and would say, made with faulty equipment and faulty assumptions, and they're all too high. Okay. And she's been studying it, and she's you know, introduced equipment from the material science world. Um, and has a better methodology for measuring it and her numbers come out a lot lower. And so I was, so I was looking at this and it was in one of these journals where things are only referenced by number. Yeah. So, so there's the author date reference system and there's just like numeric references to the end notes, oh. to the, the sources that the scientific paper cites and lots of other, you know, philosophy and, and other, other academic uh, disciplines. Yeah. So I had to go look at the end notes to be like, I wonder who was on that paper. Ah! Hoffmeister, hot dog. She's getting oh, somewhere. Good, good. <laughs> and this nice, this is nice, crunchy, high impact paper. It's like good for her. Um, but it's, you know, so that's, so, so I, I say all that to say, you know, as she would say and was saying 20 years ago, we don't, like in geology, there just aren't enough person hours to go around. We don't replicate anything. <laughs> Because hmm. we don't have enough people to do the problems the first time. Gee, so we're all out doing something. And what fun is it to replicate something? I mean, that's like, you know, the kissing your sister version of science, right? Or, I mean, right. somebody, you know, somebody has to do it. You're, you're contractually obligated to do it in order to say that you're doing real science. So, you know, physicists and biologists have to go do this. But, you know, in geology, we're too free and loose and we've got we're just swimming in problems that will never be enough of us to address all of them. So why mm. bother with replication stuff? Fascinating. <laughs> wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I mean, her comment was that, you know, this stuff goes on in geology and, and no one even goes back to check, you know, whereas in physics, you know, there'd need to be two or three studies for us to start to believe that this is a real thing. Gosh. gosh. So, so in a sense, it's uh it's a uh, not a fake news problem, but an unexamined news problem. And well, not, I, I ask only not because, a lying news problem. Uh, well, We're not it, setting out it's to not lying, anyone. right? 
You exactly. Know, fake right. news is kind of generally. Yeah, fake know, news is, is uh, just another word for a lie. Inten- yeah. Intended to deceive, yeah. Yes, but uh, but uh, it, it, there is a parallel in 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 journalism, where uh, you know uh, I've been told many times by by editors, uh, you know, let's not write that story again. Uh, we wrote mm. that, uh, we wrote about that six months ago, or mm. we wrote about that a year ago. Mm. And my my thought is. Well, you know, A, something might have changed. B, mm-hmm. a whole lot of people who read that uh, don't remember it, and it's still a very important subject. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, uh, other other people, uh, uh, they, they, they didn't read it to begin with, so now's the perfect yeah. time for them to... To learn it, and and yet uh, we don't uh, we don't have. Uh, is it any wonder why so many people today uh, are very dismissive of history? Oh, because yeah. it, right, it's it, they don't. It, it's been learned. Uh, that was that was yesterday. Uh, today mm-hmm. is today. Uh, and I, I guess it's human nature uh, first and foremost. But it's fascinating how uh, journalism and science have these similarities. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're about information transfer between people. Yes, yes. And so there's, there's bound to be similarities in their sociology, how they, yeah. how they do business. Yes, but uh, I, I know that there's a, a book that was published just a couple of years ago by a professor from Catholic University of America. I believe it's called The Tyranny of Metrics. That takes yeah. it to a whole other area that we probably don't want to spend time discussing today, but it is a whole other big area like how metrics statistics are yeah. used in the business world oh, yeah. and how, you know, uh, uh, they can deaden creativity. Uh, they, they are the measure of quality. And a lot of times uh, they, you know, like in um, things like employment reviews and, and those things, uh, you know, they look very good, very official and very objective uh, to grade somebody or something mm-hmm. on the basis of zero to five. Yeah, uh, but uh, and but, they very what? effectively hide the whole panoply of assumptions and biases, you know, to to give that, you know, that's certainly an aspect of it, you know, our exactly. own, you know, yeah. subjective, you know, who who put the metric together? How did they put it together? Right. What does right. it not measure? What does it not measure is a great question that's never asked. That is Seldom very asked. true. Seldom asked. And for instance, in the case of uh, uh, electoral polling, uh, a lot of uh, polls do not measure, is this person we've just uh, called and inquired into, uh, is he or she a likely voter? Is he or she even a registered Registered voter? voter. You know? Let alone is she a representative voter. Exactly. Yeah, that, that hopefully is somehow being captured, but even that, because of those things like the uh, income equalities, uh, who's who's more likely to answer a pollster's call and questions, all those things. Oh my goodness, it's a it's a whole maze of different things that can lean toward uncertainty when uh, statistics are presented to us as the most certain things in, on the earth. Lies, damned lies, and statistics. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, that's the thing. It's like it's easy to badmouth them. And it's, you know, so you so you think about, you know, the tyranny of metrics. And of course, like, well, yeah, that's true. But on the other hand, that's not like metrics exist for no reason. You know, right. I mean, because itself, I mean, without metrics, are we are, are we going to simply make decisions based on a pretty much raw just projecting our biases and you know right, yeah. impressions no, that's straight on to reality <laughs> without, even the, <laughs> yes. without even the intermediary of a metric <laughs> and, and uh, you're right uh, these days that too is uh, much too often uh, tried as the I, I, as the answer so. i mean that's endemic to humanity that's well that's true too that's right about that. but yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, you know, you're well, right it's good to have the statistics as a uh, fallback it's, it's all even a question more than of, a fallback position, and it's not. I, I should, I of all people should not say it's all about. But you know, one of the things, like I look at it as, if reality wanted to tell me something different than what I already think, have I right. given it an opening? Ooh, <laughs> ooh, I like that. I like that. It comes down to that to a large. I mean, that's why I like the the uh, in data science. I like the unsupervised methods more than right. I like the, the problem. I mean, of course, I'm also, you know, potentially I'm just lazy and, you know, with, <laughs> with supervised methods, you have to, you have to supervise it somehow. And that takes work, right? Because I've got to right. come up, if I want to do a regression problem, then that means I need some training data set where I say, if I, if I throw X1, X2, X3, X4 in, I get Y. Yeah. And I, you know, I have, I have to have a whole bundle of, you know, four or 500 cases, ideally, I mean, <laughs> pick a number out of, you know, thin air, maybe 50, maybe 50,000 would be nice. Um, and then I, and then I can, you know, build a model that says, okay, well, if, if you apply these, you know, six X's to something, then I should be able to spit out a Y for you. Um, and then I can actually see if it works out on the training data before I go herring forth into the, into the wild before I, and see if it actually works on anything else. Yeah. And then the classification data, if I have, you know, if the if if consumer Y, well, okay, let's not do that. If consumer Bob right. has, you know, metrics X1, X2, X3, X6, uh, then he is he is a likely repeat buyer. Okay. I, I can classify him as yes, he is, or no, he is not. You know, and then it could go back to a regression problem in terms of what is the probability that he will buy again um, from my website or something like right. that? Right. I, you know, I don't want to mess with all that. You know, I'd rather just do unsupervised where I'm just saying, well, are there clusters or are, are there bundles of people? And, you know, if you imagine in three dimensional space, like, you know, the temperature and the distance, you know, the north south distance and the, the east west distance all, you know, sort of cluster in one spot so that cold things tend to be over here and hot things tend to be over here for some reason. You know, I just like being able to find out, you know, have, it, have the data tell me that. Yes, you yes. Know, I, I don't know. Tell me data. Is, is there any, you know, bundling like that? Or, you yeah. know, let the data tell me if they're all stretched out, you know, in this one direction, 40 degrees east of north or something, and I didn't know that before I, you know, let the data tell me. Yes. Yeah. Well, it, it's good that you're willing to inquire into data. In other words, to open the door to let reality tell you something. But scientists and everybody are always still at risk of not 
inquiring into exactly the right thing or inquiring into the additional question that might give you either some valuable background to interpret the data or might give you a completely different answer that, uh, you know, it turns out that the, the question you didn't gather statistics on actually makes the statistics that you gather gathered moot. Uh, I can imagine that happening. Are there cases in science where, where that happens? I mean, for instance, in the COVID situation, uh, there's real disagreement on, uh, you know, those who are counting uh, deaths mm -hmm. uh, as the primary measure. Uh, some people would say that's the only measure to to watch. Others would say no. the the number of The number of cases is more important, and right. uh, the age groups are more important, and 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 everything like that. So uh, people aren't even sure that the statistics are being gathered on the right subjects. Well, then there's that. Yeah, I mean, you know the. The scientist, you know, the ideal is to gather all of the information, but of course, that has a cost. Yes, cost and as you effort, say, not right. There's person time. time, right? Yeah. There's time. There's cost power. The, the, uh, uh, person power. There's how much? How much does the grant pay for? Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, but the whole uh, question of like, did we collect enough data? And it turns around and like, oh yeah, we didn't. We didn't collect the right things. I mean, I face that all the time as a geologist. Is that right? Oh yeah. 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 That's that's easy to. You know, so so I mean, my my project that I worked on when I was at Southern Illinois was you know trying to was trying to use data from the literature to come up with a model. And by the time I'd gone through the whole literature on this common class of minerals, and you know vetted it down to all of the all of the analyses where they'd actually collected the chemical data that I needed, yeah, I was left with like forty some analyses out of something that are thousands of thousands of analyses in the literature of this mineral. Oh my, wow. Um, yeah, because no one no one bothered doing fluorine and chlorine. Lord knows no one was doing, you know, iron two versus iron three. That's actually, I mean, that's hard. Fluorine's oh. hard enough, um, but at least it's its own element, you know, where its own line should be, um, even if it is difficult to get a good quantitation on it for reasons that go beyond the scope of this podcast. But... Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, well, no, I mean, that's, that's, that's always the case. I think we're learning that be, just by dint of the conversation we're having, there should be nothing beyond the scope of this podcast uh, because everything is connected to everything else. Everything and, uh, is connected to everything. Unfortunately, right? we have and, finite intellects and finite time. Has, oh, yes. Oh, and speaking of finite time, I guess we do have to be closing up. But I, I was, uh, I was uh, probing earlier to see if, part of your interest, your renewed or heightened interest in the um, p-values. Um, yeah, so. yeah, are they, um, were, were they especially accentuated by your uh, boot camp studies in um, uh, what I think of as bio or as informatics, but, but you, you yeah. have data science. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, some people use the term informatics, but I guess people think it sounds, yeah, I know, you know who, can, who can explain the fads in terminology? Like right, who, right. Who can explain why words, you know, appear and disappear? Terms. Um, yeah. Well, it it comes up, you know, in particular, the case that leaps immediately to mind is um, is is like you know the situation I was describing earlier with regression. If you have a simple linear regression problem, a relatively linear simple linear regression problem, um, where you have you know three or four variables um, that are inputs 
and then you're looking for how they how an output variable changes. So your your one of your most important questions is do are there variables here that don't affect the output? Are there features they're called? The input variables are often called features for God knows why. Um, and then targets, I guess I get targets, kind of. Um, I'm now so used to the terminology that it's, it doesn't phase me as much as it used to. But when I first encountered, I like targets and features. What are you talking about? Uh, they're, uh-huh. de- they're dependent and independent variables, darn it. Why, uh, why do we need all this different? I don't know, but there are uh, four or five layers of this. Anyway, all that being said, endogenous and exogenous variables are my favorite. Oh, oh my those gosh, are who made yeah, those up? Just, wow. Um, but, uh, but the question is, maybe X5 doesn't affect Y at all. It doesn't affect Y at all. So if you if you conduct a reasonably a mildly complex um, linear regression analysis on uh, I know exactly the library the stats models library would do this and it spits out this beautiful and you can do that you can do it in Microsoft Excel and that's what I was doing for my Amphibole work. Huh. Um, but it will give you uh, you know a coefficient the thing that you multiply it by. Um, in order to get the the answer that you want, and it will spit out a p value. Okay. And that p value should tell you. So let's let's be very careful here. Um, given your hypothesis, so the null hypothesis is that this variable actually does not affect the dependent variable. Right. That would be your that would be your logical or your sensible, your ordinary, what you would expect null hypothesis. And so the p-value is telling you the likelihood, if that is actually the case, for, you know, the points to be distributed the way that they are. So if it's obvious that for low values, I mean, if, you, if, if you've mathematically analyzed the data and it's in some sense obvious that at low values of x5, all other things being as equal as you can manage given your data set, the values of y are low, And at high values of X5, again, everything else being as equal as you can manage, the values of Y are high, you will get a very low number for the P-value. You can regularly get P-values that are like 1 times 10 to the negative sixth. So, you know, one ten thousandth of 1%. um, Because it's just obvious from the data that these two variables are connected. Okay. Um, there, you know, correlation is not causation. Don't right. That's an important that thing today. to remember. We don't right. have time to go into that today. We don't necessarily know which direction the causal arrow points. You know, I've been calling an independent variable. There's the assumption that it must be changeable and that the Y would then change in response, but it's not necessarily the case. Um, maybe the X's are just the things we can measure and the Y is the thing that's hard to measure. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So, and that's, that's, that's a perfectly legitimate use of, of, uh, of a regression technique. Um, hmm. But yeah, so that's 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 a that's another case of the use of p values that I you know have been you know had my face shoved in very recently and was reminded of you know intrigued by. Well, but there's so all least, I mean dozens of statistics you could measure besides the p value. I'm glad to hear that scientists are at least aware of these hidden uh, potholes in uh, analysis and use of. Statistics. Uh, uh, sometimes I'm afraid that uh, at least the headline-seeking uh, journalists um, really are barely even aware of statistics that you know the the local lobbyist or PR person might might hand them as proof positive of a particular 
platform or a particular right. uh, policy statement? I don't know how many journalists, I mean, some. I don't know how many lobbyists, some, you know, have ever tangled intellectually with the question of whether statistics are reliable or under what circumstances they can be trusted. Yes. Yeah. And all of them. <laughs> Oh, exactly right. Uh, yeah, that that will we don't have time to worry about that right That's now. Right. We'll we'll That's worry right. about that sometime in the future. That's right. Yeah, but this was fun. This was a uh, boy. Uh, this is an area of crossover that I didn't even uh, really think about in terms of our uh, uh, you know being a duo looking at these at these uh, issues. Uh, I knew that uh, science and uh, uh, philosophy and and uh, religion and all of those things had many crossover points. It's fun to have discussed uh, this uh, this crossover yeah. point. Yeah. yeah, I think so. So yeah, well, hopefully you agree, dear listener, and uh, we'll see you again in uh, in a few weeks. We'll bring Very good. You the uh, the rest of the uh, our conversation with Garrett. What's his first name again? Oh yeah, Dick, uh, Garrett. Dick, Dick Garrett, Garrett is Dick yes, Garrett. yeah. Talk My about someone. Dick. Yeah, uh, no, and he he's a great uh, user of statistics in an area where statistics are are not particularly well used or or understood a lot of times. Oh, education, yeah, yeah. The whole question of policy. Maybe we could bring that up next month. That would be a logical Garrett. segue to to what he was talking about. Very good. And may I just ask? Uh, may I, I just wish all of our readers that while you say that they're exciting. Uh, I personally hope that none of our listeners encounters a, a magma ocean in the next uh, few weeks. <laughs> All of those things. That really would be a new chapter of, of Revelation. Somebody, and, some, some joke that I've that heard would, this year, like yeah. you know, looking out the window to see what uh, chapter of the book of Revelation we're on today. Right. Here's, you know, violence among the nations. Here's plague. Oh, here's, exactly. You know, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that that that's that's what fuels at least uh, one quarter of the uh, Christian radio st- uh, or TV station uh, uh, log time. You know the, 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 those questions. Is. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you for filling our uh, podcast with interesting thoughts. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, hope so. yeah. All right. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for listening to this episode of That's So Second Millennium. TSSM's audio producer is Morgan Burkhart. Our theme music, Igneous Grok, was composed and performed by Vin Marquardt. For my co-host, Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Geesting. Until next time.